There was a moment in uh, Jesus' life where he had a contention with the religious leaders. It was right after one of those episodes where they were questioning, questioning him about some of his Sabbath day activity. Uh, they felt that he shouldn't heal on the Sabbath. Jesus felt that he should heal on the Sabbath, and so they got into a dispute with each other at that point. And Jesus shared with them that there were witnesses of his identity that they were rejecting. Now, the first witness was the witness of Moses, who had prophesied that one would come who was like Moses. And Moses with the, the Ten Commandments, the law, the deliverer of Israel, so to speak. Jesus came as that. He came with the new covenant. Not the old covenant, but the new covenant. He came as the new deliverer of God's people to deliver us from not Egypt, but from our slavery to sin. Amen? So that was kind of the first witness. And then he also mentioned the witness of John the Baptist, who was, was the, the, the last of the prophets, so to speak. That last prophetic voice paving the way, declaring the way for the Lord. And then he said there was another witness, all of his miracles. You know, everything that he did was designed to back up the message and the identity that he spoke and the identity that he was. And then the final witness that Jesus held out was all of Scripture, that all of the Bible was testifying of him and his identity. And I want you to hear what he said in that point. He said to the religious leaders, you search the Scriptures. This is from John 5, verse 39. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. In other words, they thought that they were getting eternal life simply by studying the Bible, but they needed to realize in their study of the Bible that that very Bible they were studying prophesied, testified, spoke of him, spoke of Jesus. The reason I'm sharing that this morning is because in 2 Samuel 4 and 5, it's another one of those passages in the life of David where there are so many things that testify of Jesus. In this passage, David is going to become the king over all of Israel, and it just reminds us in so many ways of King Jesus. So I'm going to try to draw out Jesus Christ for you and for us as we go through this passage uh, together. Now, just a reminder at this point, uh, Saul is dead, the previous king in Israel, but he still has sons that are alive. One son in particular, a man named Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth had a general whose name was, anybody know for extra credit this morning? Abner, okay? Don't say it so lethargically, like you don't care. Be excited, Abner. You, you know the answer. Okay, so Abner at this point is dead, but Ishbosheth is still alive. He still is potentially an impediment to the throne. So before we see David crowned as king of all of Israel, Ishbosheth needs to die. He's got to be removed as an obstacle for David. So that's what chapter four is about. How did Ishbosheth die? So, verse 1. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed and all Israel was dismayed. That's what we read of last week. Joab, David's general, had killed Abner, Ishbosheth's general, right when he was trying to make peace with David and, and deliver the whole nation of Israel over to David. That's when Joab killed Abner because Abner had killed his brother previously. So, 
Ishbosheth hears about it. He's upset. All Israel is dismayed. Now, verse 2, Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of one was Bana, the name of the other Rechab, sons of Ramon, of a man of Benjamin from Beeroth. Now, the original readers of this would maybe read the word Beeroth or the town Beeroth and have a question. So the author answers the question. You probably weren't asking this question when you read it, but they would have. So that's why it says, For Beeroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Gitaim and have been sojourners there to this day. So the original readers would have said, Oh, that's what happened to Beeroth, but you didn't care. Uh, <laughs> verse 4, Jonathan, the son of Saul had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled, and as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. Now, one of Saul's sons was Jonathan. You remember Jonathan, right? Jonathan and David were great friends together. One of Saul's sons was Jonathan. Jonathan, at this point, is also dead. He died in battle with his father, Saul. Just a reminder for you. But the passage is telling us that he had a son named Mephibosheth. And when, when, when Jonathan died, Mephibosheth was five years old. And they, they were, as they fled for their lives, he fell in that haste, and he was injured. And so now at this point, seven and a half years later, he's either 12 or 13 years old, but he is still injured. Why is this being written for us right here? In a couple chapters, we're going to read about Mephibosheth. David's going to have an encounter with him. But the reason that we're hearing about him now is because uh, the author wants us to know Mephibosheth, though alive, is not a potential candidate to take the throne for Saul. Uh, not because of his age, but because he was disabled. And in that era and culture, they would not have considered him as a potential candidate for the throne. That's, that's not a right thing or a good thing. It just, that's what it was. And so that's why the author is recording that for us here. Mephibosheth is not a challenger to the throne. Now, verse five, the sons of Ramon, the Berethite, Rechab and Bana, back to these two guys, they set out and about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Bana, his brother, escaped. And when they came into the house, this is specifically how they did it, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah, about 30 miles away, all night, probably to avoid, uh, avoid detection, and brought, verse 8, the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who saw your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day, on Saul and his offspring. All right, so some of you, this is, might be your first day here in the church. Welcome. Here's our passage today. People are getting their heads cut off. It's crazy. <clears throat> now, just to remind you, a few weeks ago we saw when Saul died, the way he died was that he was struck by Philistine archers. He knew he was going to perish he asked someone to take him out to, to finish a job so that, he, that it wouldn't be a Philistine arrow that killed him, but an Israelite sword. His armor bearer wouldn't do it, so he fell on his own sword. Then an Amalekite man 
came upon Saul's dead body, took his bracelets and his crown and brought them to David in 2 Samuel chapter 1. And instead of telling David what truly happened, he said, I came upon Saul, he was dying, he asked me to thrust him through with a sword, and so I did it. And the reason he said that was to try to get David's favor. As if David would say, Saul was my enemy, you killed my enemy, now I'll give you an exalted position in my kingdom. But that's not how David felt about Saul. He didn't see him as his enemy, he saw him as the anointed of the Lord. And so Instead, he executed as his kind of first act as the next king, capital punishment upon the Amalekites. So now we come to this story, and it's like we already know what's going to happen to these two guys that come to David with Saul's son's head trying to get favor from David. We already know what's going to happen, so let's read it in verse 9. It says, But David answered Rechab and Bana his brother, the sons of Ramon the Berethite, as the Lord lives who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. Quite a reward. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house and on his bed. His point is, Saul had evil intentions. Ishbosheth didn't. Saul was in battle. Ishbosheth wasn't. He was in his house. Saul had armor on. Ishbosheth was sleeping on his bed. How much more, when men do that to him, shall I not require, verse 11, his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? So they said, uh oh. And David commanded, verse 12, his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it, so some honor for Saul's son, buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. I think David was trying to make an example of this wickedness by posting up their hands and their feet because it's important for us at times to learn from the failures of the wicked. And so David was making an example of these men. The, th- the thing that I want you to see, though, is the phrase of David, if you'd go back to it in verse 9. Notice the first words out of his mouth to these two men. He said, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. Can anybody here say amen to the Lord that he has done that for your life? The, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. You see, David was the guy who, when he was 15, 16 years old and went out and saw Goliath taunting the armies of Israel, he was the one who asked the question, who is this Philistine who is taunting the armies of the living God? And in that episode, the first person, the only person to speak of God was David. Everybody else had their eyes on themselves or on Goliath, but David saw the living God. And David is the same figure who years later, when he went out into Saul's camp and the Lord put a deep sleep upon them as they were pursuing David to try to kill David and take his life, David's nephew said to him, let me strike him with the spear. And remember David speaking in that moment announced, I don't have to touch him. The Lord will take care of him. 
He'll either die of old age or he'll die in battle or the Lord will strike him directly, but I don't need to touch him. This is not my business. I don't need to influence the future. I can just let the Lord take care of it. David's conclusion here to these two men is that the same God who delivered him in the past, who was alive in the past, is still alive today. In other words, he's saying to these men, I don't need your help. I don't need to take the kingdom for myself. I need to simply receive the kingdom from God. I don't need your help in acquiring the kingdom. God is going to give me the kingdom. Now this is absolutely beautiful. That he would receive it rather than take it for himself. I remember years ago, I think I was 21, 22 years old or so, and just getting started in public ministry, and we were having a church service, I think it was a Sunday, and I was asked to come and pray for before the time of the giving of the tithes and the offerings. So I came up, I prayed, and I prayed, and I said, and now the ushers are going to come and take this morning's tithes and offerings. And after the service, the older pastors pulled me aside, and they're like, hey, don't ever say it like that. I was like, what? What did I say? They said, you said that the ushers are going to come and take this morning's tithes and offering. That's not what happened. They're not coming out like, hey. You know? <laughs> say they're coming to receive this morning's tithes and offerings. Whatever people want to give, that's fine. You receive it. And that's always stu- stu- stood out in my mind. I don't think I've ever said take the tithes and offerings ever again. It's a stick up you know, <laughs> kind of thing. David here was going to receive the kingdom from the Lord rather than take the kingdom for himself with these men. And that spirit, that attitude from David seems so beautiful to us because it is emblematic of the spirit of Jesus. That is how Jesus operated. Let me rattle off a few verses to you from the words of Christ. At the end of his earthly ministry, before he went to the cross, Jesus prayed to the Father, listen to this, John 17, verse 4 and 5, he said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished, Father, the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Father, you gave me a work, I did it, and now I'm praying that you would glorify me. I'm not going to glorify myself. You, Father, must raise me up. You must glorify me. The angel speaking to Mary before the birth of Christ, said to her, the Lord will give to him, your child, Jesus, the throne of his father, David. It would be given to Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my father. The father had this will and desire and gave it to the son. Then later in Luke 22, verse 29, Jesus said to his disciples, I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom. You know, he just very much saw himself as receiving a kingdom from his father, not taking it, but receiving it from his father. And he said this in John chapter 6, verse 39, he said, and this is the will of the father, him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. That's you. That's me. Those are believers. All that the Father has given to the Son, Jesus will raise up 
on the last day. It is a beautiful spirit from Jesus that he does not take, but he receives. It is a Christ-like spirit that David is living out in front of these people. I'm not going to take it. I'm going to receive it. I think an application of this or a question that we should ask ourselves is, wouldn't it be beautiful if we had a little more of that Christ-like spirit in us? The one that doesn't strive to get and take, but the one that says, I will receive. I will receive what the Lord gives to me. Listen, I, I actually think that this kind of this, this part of the spirit of Christ or the attitude of Christ could revolutionize a lot of people's relationships, their key relationships in life. Because I found that a lot of times the way that people, I think kind of the default way that human beings operate with key relationships in their lives, parents, children, spouses, I think a lot of times the way that people operate is through pressure. Pressure to take you know, when are you going to call me? When are you going to compliment me? When are you going to be romantic? When are you going to let me into the hospital room after the baby's born? Like, when are you going to win it? And it's like a pressure. And what you end up getting is a person that says, like, finally, I'll, I'll, okay, fine. I'll give up. I'll give you what you want. But it's not a relationship. It's not a relationship. A Christ-like spirit says, I am going to take or receive what the Lord gives to me. All right, so beautiful attitude from David. I think I heard somebody say preach over there. So going through that, going through that, just a little word for you. Okay, now chapter five, let's move into that. Second Samuel chapter five. Then all the tribes, so what did David do? You know, now Ishbosheth is dead, he's off the scene. Then all the tribes of Israel, so not only Judah, they came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. So everybody gets together and they make David the king over not just Judah, the tribe, but all of Israel uh, at this point. And we have a little chronology there. He was 30 when he became the king over the tribe of Judah, 37 or 38 when he became the king over all of Israel, and then 70 when he died and his reign ended. Uh, but what I want you to see here is the celebration in all of this. Actually, First Chronicles records this whole episode a little bit more fully, and it tells us that there were over 300,000 soldiers from the various tribes of Israel who put on their armor and marched to Hebron to be with David to submit to his leadership. And then after getting there, they had a three-day festival. They brought all this meat, all these animals to kill, butcher, barbecue, all this food. For three days, they celebrated David is the king. And they gave three reasons why they wanted David to be their king. Reason number one is found in verse one. Did you see it there? They said, behold, we are your bone and flesh. 
And, and this is their way of saying, look, we know you're from the tribe of Judah. We're from Benjamin. We're from Asher. We're from all these other tribes. We're not from the tribe of Judah, but at the end of the day, we're all the people of Israel. We're family. We're a nation. So we're of your bone and flesh. And reason number two was, hey, when Saul was king, verse two, when Saul was king, you were actually the one that brought us in and out for battle. You know, you defeated Goliath. You led our armies. You were the one winning wars for us, even when Saul was still king. And reason number three is also in verse two. Did you see it there? They say, and the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. Those were the three reasons. You're our bone and flesh. You won the victories for us. And the Lord said that you should be our shepherd. By the way, these same three reasons, these are the, these are the same three reasons that I want Jesus Christ to be the king of my life. Well, number one, he became flesh and dwelt among us. And like David, who was bone and flesh with the people of Israel, Jesus Christ became flesh for you and for me. Listen to this from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. I think that we should make sure that in our hearts we do not tire of the truth of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It is amazing that God became one of us for us. Now, I was listening to a friend of mine recently teach the Bible. You know, sometimes I'll just listen to pastors for my own personal edification, and then sometimes I'll do it to keep up with some of my friends and see how they're doing, how their leadership's going, you know, stuff like that. And I was listening to a younger friend of mine who's in a little season of transition where he's assuming leadership of the church that he's been a part of. And I just kind of wanted to tune in and I was listening to him and he was talking about the passage in Matthew 6. He kind of referred to it and he said, you know, Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. You know, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And then the comment that he made, the commentary that he gave was, you know, that's easy for you to say, Jesus, because you know what's going to happen tomorrow. You know, that was what he said. Have you ever felt that way about some of the things that Jesus says? You know, like, hey, don't worry about tomorrow. And you're like, but you know the end from the beginning. I mean, the Bible says that to the Lord, a thousand days is a thousand years is as one day, and one day is like a thousand years. That he 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 you know, sees the end from the beginning. So what do you mean? Don't worry about tomorrow. Like, you know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't. That's why I'm worried about it, you know, kind of thing. So that was like the comment he made. But as I listened to that, I thought, no, actually, um, you know, when, when Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, what the Bible teaches is that not that he set aside his deity, he did not set aside his divinity. He was very much God in human flesh walking amongst us. But he set aside, the word Paul uses in Philippians 2 is the word kenosis, which means he emptied himself of the privileges of his deity. So he made a decision, I'm going to live a life on earth like everyone else. I'm going to trust the power of the Holy Spirit I'm going to lean upon my father 
I think, in a sense, you could say he divested himself of the privileges of his glory to where each day he was asking the Father, Father, what today? Look, we need to be impressed with the reality that he became one of us. I know we read the stories about him like walking on water and we're like, well, yeah, you became one of us. Like, But there's a big asterisk in the whole became one of us thing. As if he had these superpowers. No, he was trusting in the ability of the Father. He was leaning upon the strength of the Spirit. He truly became flesh and dwelt among us. And maybe we would say to ourselves, but his life, you know, it's not like my life. Yeah, you didn't have to get crucified. Yes, that's true. His life was harder. His life was more difficult. The stuff that he consumed, the intensity of spiritual warfare that he came against, none of us have ever experienced or tasted. Yeah, he stood. He was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. And he didn't do that to rub it in and say, I could do it, why couldn't you? He did it so that he could be the perfect sacrifice for you and me and so that he could identify with us eternally. Eternally. It's incredible that there's this eternal God who understands us because he became one of us. Now David also, they said, we want you to be king because you won a great victory for us. Which reminds us of the cross of Christ. And also they wanted him to be king because he was called to be the shepherd king of Israel, just as Jesus is called to be the shepherd king of our lives. Listen to what Jesus said in John 10, verse 27. He said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. We're to have a personal relationship with this shepherd king Jesus. So the second big, big thing we see here about Jesus is that he's called to be our shepherd king because he was bone and flesh with us. He won a great victory for us and his calling on his life is to lead us and be our king. All right, now I better keep going here and, and move forward. So let's see what happens next in verse six. What we have next is David defeating and expanding Jerusalem. You heard about Jerusalem at all in the news lately? It's always a big deal, Jerusalem. You know, it'd be good for everybody to pause and say, why? Why is it such a big deal? It's, it's, and here we're going to see the beginning of God's plans for the city of Jerusalem. It says, verse 6, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Now, the Jebusites, they had always lived in Jerusalem. And when Joshua went into the promised land many years before David, God had said that Jerusalem was one of the cities that he was giving to the people of Israel. He'd given advance warning to everybody there in the promised land. This belongs to my people. Uh, but the problem was, is that Joshua, nor any generation that came after Joshua, was strong enough to defeat Jerusalem. But David wanted Jerusalem. And the, part of the reason he wanted Jerusalem was because it was a strategic place to make his capital city. Because any other place, you know, the people in Judah, if he stayed in Hebron, the people in Judah would tell everybody in the north, see, we're favored by David. You know, he put his capital city inside of our area. And if he moved up into the other northern tribes, then he might be prone to favor them. But Jerusalem was right in the middle of everybody. And so that was the place that he wanted. I want that 
to be my capital city. And God had already decided that it belonged to the people of Israel, but they never had been strong enough to judge the people who were living inside of it, the Jebusites. So what do the Jebusites do? Well, they mock David. We read it there in verse 6. They say, you won't come in here, the blind and the lame will defend this city. That was their way of saying, we are so fortified that even if David comes up here, we don't have to even put out military people to defend our city. We could put out people who have disabilities to defend the city because our, the city is so strong. There's no way you can get in here. Nevertheless, verse 7, David took the stronghold of Zion. That is the city of David. So two new names for Jerusalem, Zion and the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Now that's not David saying, I have a thing against people with disabilities. It's his way of saying, oh, that's what you Jebusites are calling yourself? Well, I'll come in there and I'll, I'll defeat the quote unquote lame and blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore, it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. It's a saying. You say it all the time, right? Is that what you say? No, that was their saying back then. It was basically a proverb about the enemies of David in general. And David lived in the stronghold, verse 9, and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward. Now, in verse 10, it says also, and David became greater and greater. For the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, so this is a, a, a nation up the coast from Israel, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David, verse 13, again we see this, thing in David's life, took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem, Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishima, Eliada, and Eliphalet. All right, so what we have there in the verses that we just read is David first defeating Jerusalem, then expanding Jerusalem, and then his family growing while he was there in Jerusalem. Now, the way that they defeated Jerusalem was actually pretty interesting. When you put this passage together with the First Chronicles passage, apparently after David heard those taunts, he put a challenge out to his army. And he said, hey, whoever can figure out a way into Jerusalem, I will give him an esteemed military position. Well, you know who figured it out was Joab. Joab figured out where the water was coming into the city, and so they went up this water shaft and somehow invaded the city that way and took over uh, Jerusalem. All right, now, let me just say this. This is actually a pretty big deal, biblically, because Jerusalem is a really big deal, biblically. You see, what, what happened at this point is that David went in, and he began to establish that as the capital city. He began to build it up. He filled in all the gaps. That's what probably the building up of the millow means. He filled in the gaps and the valleys. He expanded the walls and really fortified this city. He built his house there. 
The Bible goes on to tell us that a moment came in David's life where what he wanted to do, because he'd already moved the ark and the tabernacle there, that eventually he wanted to replace the tabernacle. People of Israel had a tent that they would worship God in with a couple of different rooms, a holy place and the holy of holies. The ark was inside of it. They'd offer sacrifices. The smoke would rise to God. But David wanted to make it a permanent structure for God. Uh, The Lord told David, though, you're not allowed to build me the the, uh, temple because you are a man of war. You have blood on your hands. You've been a, a man of war, but your son will build it for me. So David did everything but build the temple himself. He got the architectural design put together. He acquired all of the supplies, some of them from this same king, Hiram. He got everything all put together. He gave Solomon the instructions and was like, when I die, Solomon, all you got to do is push this button and the temple will be built. You know, he organized everything so that the temple could be built. And from that point forward, Jerusalem and how it was doing became emblematic of the spiritual life in Israel. Basically, you could say it like this. If the smoke from the altar in the temple was rising in Jerusalem, then in general, Israel was doing well spiritually. But if they were not offering sacrifices and people weren't making pilgrimages there, uh, then they weren't doing as well spiritually. And there were some dark times for Israel after that temple was built in Jerusalem. Times where the Bible even got hidden and they'd pull out the rubble and they'd like rediscover the Bible. Someone would say, we just found the Bible trying to renovate the temple. In general, how Jerusalem was doing and how the temple was doing was a mark of how God's people were doing. Now, when Jesus came, he, like many of the prophets before him, spoke out against Jerusalem because they weren't doing well when he came. He actually, you might remember the episodes, would go into the temple and overturn the tables of the money changers, those that were buying and selling and ripping off the people. And he would quote from the Old Testament and say, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. In other words, what Jesus wanted to see was health in Jerusalem and vibrant worship inside the temple. All nations pumping into this place, worshiping the God of Israel. But he said, no, that's not what I see here. Instead, you've made it into a den of thieves. And in fact, right before Jesus went to the cross, listen to this word that he spoke about Jerusalem. He said, they will, this is from Luke 19, verse 44, they will crush you into the ground, Jerusalem. You and your children with you, your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God visited you. That was his prophetic word about what was going to happen in Jerusalem because God came, they rejected him. And so in 70 AD, after Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, a couple decades later, the Romans came in and attacked, besieged Jerusalem, and overturned the temple, every single stone, fulfilling the prophecies that Jesus had spoken. Now, you might say to yourself, that seems all very past tense, but here's the reality. There is always a Jerusalem in the mind of God. Now, there still is a physical earthly Jerusalem that's still making the news today, and I believe that Jesus Christ will visibly, personally return to that Jerusalem, that he'll put his feet down on the Mount of Olives 
in the future just outside of Jerusalem. They'll come into the east gate and that the Messiah will be seen and known by the whole world. However, that is not the Jerusalem that believers place their ultimate hope in and upon. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 12 and 13 tells us. It says to Christians, Hebrews 12, verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. He says in Hebrews 13, verse 14, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. What is the city that is to come? Well, we're seeking heaven, but the city that is to come is the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem spoken of in Revelation chapter 21. Look, the reason that I'm making a big deal about all of this is because when David established Jerusalem, it was his way of saying, God has a kingdom, this is its capital, and we are going to worship God in this capital city, and as long as we are, we are doing well. Look, God still has a kingdom, and he still has a capital, it's inside of you. It's it's in your heart if you're a believer. There's a new hope, a new Jerusalem, and there's a new temple. The temple is not something physical. The Bible teaches in the New Testament era that you are the temple. I am the temple as believers of the Holy Spirit. So the question is, how am I operating? Am I operating like Christ is king of my life? Is the smoke, so to speak, of sacrifice and daily worship and partaking of him, is that happening in my life? Or am I like the eras in Jerusalem's history where they neglected God? They would not obey God. They wandered from God. You see, those were invitations to bring in the judgment and darkness into their lives. No, our citizenship, Philippians 3 verse 20, is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I'm just trying to say, let Jesus Christ be the Lord of your life uh, completely and fully, because our ultimate hope is in Him. Okay, let's close by reading this last story together. The Philistines, they heard that David had become king, and that he was building out Jerusalem, They got worried about it. So in verse 17, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David, but David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come, verse 18, and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. This is about three or four miles southwest of Jerusalem. And David inquired of the Lord. Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. Again, he's probably using the priest and the ephod to determine the Lord's desire. And David came to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal Perazim, which means literally. Uh, the Lord or the master breaks out. So that's speaking of God. God has broken out against my enemies like a breaking flood. And the Philistines, verse 21, left their idols there and David and his men carried them away, which is kind of a big deal in First and Second Samuel because First Samuel begins with the Philistines carrying away the ark of God and now David is carrying away the idols of the Philistines, carrying them away to destruction. 
And the Philistines, verse 22, came up yet again, one more time. Same thing, they spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So same story, second verse. And when David, verse 23, inquired of the Lord, he said, you shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. So here we have these two significant battles of the Philistines against the people of Israel. They're in the valley of Rephaim trying to divide Israel once again. They've been unified, but this valley, if they can take it, they'll be able to effectively divide them once again. So they're trying to divide Israel. David asks the Lord the first time, do you want me to go battle against them? God says, go up, go do it. So he goes, wins a victory. The Philistines come out again into the valley of Rephaim and David Interestingly enough, same thing. He's watching the same thing, but he asks God again. I kind of ask myself the question, like if I saw the same thing happen a second time, if God said to go up the first time, would I even ask the Lord the second time? But David went back to the Lord. He asked the second time. And this time God said, don't go up. Instead, go around and wait until you hear the sound of marching up in the tops of the balsam trees. Then you'll know that I am going in front of you, like the sound of God's invisible army going in front of you, and then go out. And so David did that, and he won a second great victory against the Philistines. Look, the, the thing I wanted to point out here, I mean, there's something beautiful there about the devotion of David, just seeking the Lord. But the thing I just wanted to point out is that God did not do it the same way twice. Did not do it the same way twice. He had to, David, Ask the Lord, what do you want to do this time? What do you want to do this time? I know you want me to defend the people of Israel, but how do you want me to do it? I'm going to seek you and ask you how you want to go about this. This reminds me of Jesus. When he walked around Israel working miracles, he would often perform the same miracle, but with a different methodology. I mean, think about the way that Jesus healed blind people. Now, there was a time where a couple of blind guys called out to the Lord. And he went up to them and he told them that they needed to believe. They said they believed and he touched their eyes and they were healed. There was another time where Jesus went to a man and spit in his eyes, rubbed it in there and asked the guy, what do you see? And the guy said, I see, tr I see men like trees walking around. And so Jesus spit in his eyes again, rubbed it in a little bit more and the guy wiped away. He's like, what do you see now? And he's like, now I see clearly. It was like this progressive healing. And there was another guy where when Jesus healed him, he spit in the ground. I don't know, it was like a, it was like a thing, I guess, the saliva. Spit in the ground, made some mud, put it in the man's eyes, rubbed it in, and said, go away and wash your eyes in the pool of Siloam. And the man went away, never got to see Jesus, went away washed his eyes, and he was able to see. There was another time where they cried out to Jesus, heal us, you know, we're blind, heal us, and he just spoke a word of healing. No saliva, those guys got the good situation. And he, you know, without physical touch, spoke into their lives, they were 
healed. If you were trying to write a book entitled, How Does Jesus Heal Blindness? You'd be like, we don't know. We don't know. He does it, but he doesn't follow the same script every single time. I think part of the reason why the Lord loves to do that kind of thing to us, where it's just not the same thing, you know, it's not the same plan every single time, is so that we will daily cling to him. We'll daily cling to him. When my first child was born, it took a few years to figure out, like, okay, this is how you do this. Then the second child was born, and was like, what? It's the exact opposite person. Okay, now i got to figure out this. Then when our third child was born, we thought to ourselves, well, she's going to be one or the other. Nope, door C. <laughs> totally different person, you know? And it's like, okay, Lord, you're creating a dependency. You see, Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What he is desiring more than just, hey, here's the 50-year plan. Go do that. Talk to you in heaven. He wants us to be personally dependent upon him in life. And so David learned that there as he went out and fought against the Philistines. So, man, I just see the Lord Jesus all over this little passage, and may we allow him to be the king of our lives. So I'm going to close in prayer, and uh, after I'm, I do that, the ushers will come forward and distribute the bread and the cup for everyone here who's a believer, and we'll partake of communion together this morning. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about Calvary Monterey and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our senior pastor, Nate Holdridge. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.